Hello and welcome to another episode of Triassic Park. And today we're talking about Tremors. At first glance, Tremors seems like a movie which doesn't really belong on this podcast. After all, the film itself goes out of its way to leave the origin of its titular monsters dubious at best. They don't really talk about it. They don't specify in this movie where the creatures come from. Good thing there are five sequels and a television series, almost two, and they fully flesh out the origins of the quote-unquote Graboids. These are prehistoric creatures, and also this is my podcast, and I'm going to talk about whatever I want, so screw it. Honestly, I think Tremors may be the perfect monster movie. It brings together the tropes of the genre and perfects each one. The cast, incredible. Chemistry is great amongst everyone. You have good human elements, and then you have amazing creatures and amazing creature designs. This was made before CGI. The Graboid has a simple, sleek design, and the rules that govern the creature, pretty straightforward. The script understands the functions of the creature, and they utilize their own rules to find a solution. Tremors is the first feature film by director Ron Underwood. This is Underwood's best film and his only monster movie aside from the 1998 remake of Mighty Joe Young. These days, Underwood mostly works on TV, and he's done quite a bit of shows that have pretty big geek cred, from Fear the Walking Dead all the way to Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. The plot of Tremors? Relatively simple. Two handy men are looking to get out of the deadbeat town, aptly named Perfection, but as they try to leave the valley, they are unknowingly sucked into a fight for their lives against horrible underground monsters. Written by S.S. Wilson and Brett Maddock, they really made this franchise their baby. Up until the more modern entries of 5 and 6, they were directing where the series would go. Literally, in fact. S.S. Wilson directed Tremors 2 and Tremors 4, while Maddock would tackle Tremors 3. And they also fleshed out many episodes of the TV series. Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon are without the doubt the stars of this movie, but it would be the character actor Michael Gross who would be the star of the series after this. Burt Gummer makes quite the mark in the original Tremors as the doomsday prepping gun nut married to the wonderful Reba McIntyre, who is just as skilled with a shotgun as he is. Ward would return in Tremors 2, while Bacon would only return in a TV pilot directed by Vincenzo Natale, which never saw the light of day, and that would have actually been the second Tremors TV series. And would have mostly been a reboot, it didn't seem to take place in continuity with the later sequels. The origin of Tremors was a simple one. Writers Wilson and Maddock found themselves on a boulder one day while they were on a hike. When on the boulder, they reportedly asked each other, what if there was something that wouldn't let us off the rock? This idea was originally titled Land Sharks, coming to sci-fi this October. They fleshed out the idea with director Ron Underwood, and he was working at National Geographic. Land Shark became an SNL skit, so they had to change the name of the movie. Thank God. The original script was also way more R-rated, and they used the word fuck so many times. They wanted a PG-13 rating, 
So they redubbed a large amount of the movie. This is why that you have lines like Mother Humper instead of Motherfucker. And the use of the one F-bomb in the movie is pretty legendary where you have Kevin Bacon yell, Fuck you! And I say that all the time. And I don't think it would have been as effective if the characters were talking like they were Joe Pesci. For a 90s creature feature, the cast is surprisingly diverse, and the diversity is not really played up for laughs. Characters like Miguel, played by Tony Gennaro, are a vital member to the ensemble, and they have a significant role in the team's survival. Walter Chang, played by the brilliant Victor Wong, was originally meant to be a character named Pham Van. However, that was changed after they cast Wong, who was a Chinese actor, as opposed to one of Vietnamese descent, which is what the character was originally as Wong is a mainstay of genre cinema with my personal favorite being his role in Big Trouble Little China the town was pretty much made from scrap which is really impressive given how set pieces like Chang's Market were completely able to implode that's a little bit of history behind the movie but let's get into today's dinosaur breakdown Okay, it's not really a dinosaur. We're talking about a fictional species, but that's fine. You're getting a fictional history because the graboids of Tremors, they seem pretty conventional at first. And for the first movie, yeah, they're pretty self-sufficient and pretty straightforward. Giant desert worms who maneuver through the desert using a series of barbs located throughout their body. They have a beak-like mouth and three tongues they use to consume their prey. They hunt by use of sound, and it's shown that loud sounds can actually harm the creatures. In the behind the scenes for the first movie, all the creative teams state that they never really intended for there to be a solution as to where the creatures came to and from. However, future sequels would reveal that the Graboids had prehistoric origins. Along with their origins, they would elaborate on the Graboid life cycle. The American variant, oh yes, there are multiple variants depending where you are, had three distinct life cycles, whereas the African and Arctic, uh, the movie takes place in none of it, but they're intended to be like an Arctic subspecies, only had two states of the creature's life cycle. So the first film, you know, they were the American species, so as such their life cycle would have been Graboids become Shriekers. Shriekers grow out of their three weird little tongues. They become little guys that look kind of like velociraptors that can only see using infrared. From there, they go through another change where they can fly from self-propulsion and they're named Ass Blasters? Tremor Street is a weird one where they're able to fly, and when they land, they can lay eggs, and the eggs would hatch, which led to more graboids, which would start the life cycle over again. In Tremors 3, they would continue to muddle up their lifespan and species, when it was revealed that in very rare scenarios, there could be an albino graboid, which, apart from just being white, it would not produce shriekers, and the creature would always be a graboid. The African none-of-it variants will be discussed at a later date. Well, that was our breakdown. 
let's talk about the movie itself. And thankfully, I'm not alone in this journey. I am joined by a legendary podcaster, one of the very best, the man who gave me my break in podcasting, Michael Dodd. Hello. That's right. It is I, Mike the Birdman Dodd from ThisWeekInGeek.net. You may hear me occasionally across Canadian radio as I talk about various pop culture subjects, mostly video games and most often stupidity happening within my industry. But yes, uh, Roebuck uh, was on a few Twig podcasts back in the day, regular correspondent for the Nerd News Network which evolved into the Twig uh, main show. We now run on Monday uh, mornings on thisweekgeek.net. And uh, I've known Roebuck for many years. Um, he's been <laughs> Roebucked with me many times, fun times, as always. Um, so, yeah, Andrew started this conversation on Twitter last week, and I just happened to catch it, how he wanted to talk Tremors. And uh, I was really excited to actually do this. I actually have a little bit of a connection with the Tremors franchise uh, in a tangential way. Um, you're an ass blaster. Is that what you're going to reveal? Not exactly. <laughs> I actually interviewed Jamie Kennedy. Um, after oh. He, yeah, he was just coming off of doing one of them. I think it was the one at the beach or the one after that. It probably that, was five if I were to guess. What year was it? I can't remember off the top of my head, but I re remember, despite all the flack Jamie Kennedy's gotten, he was a really good uh, interview for me. So nice. I'm, That's I, awesome. I'm, I'm hoping nothing terrible comes out against him as I say that because it's 2020 and this is the everlasting dumpster fire. So, <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong in that regard. Like just, From all I know, he seems like a he seems like a nice enough guy. He seems yeah. like a nice guy. I've seen him at a few conventions and uh, he he's always very willing to like get photos with people and have fun and you know be kind of relaxed, which is, which is nice, which is nice. Exactly. So my experience with the Tremors franchise actually goes all the way back to the early 90s. So, um, Roebuck, how old are you compared to me? I'm 30. I'm going to be turning 39 in just a couple of months. Well, you know, maybe 27, I'm 27. Okay, so you're young. Um, yeah, I'm a little baby. <laughs> all right. So I remember way back in the old, old days, um, you used to get television over these things called antennas, like bunny. What? I know. Antennas. Weird. So I remember one Friday night, um, I'm probably grade seven or eight, maybe going into high school. And the programming block for Friday nights was never great. I mean, especially if you're a Canadian kid, you had your choices of global CBC or um, CTV. And CTV was one of the best people on Friday nights because they, they would always show movies. And I remember I caught this completely by accident. Um, I'd come home from like school that day. I'd just gotten sick of playing Super Nintendo. I'd had dinner already. So I sat down in my basement and just turned on the CTV movie of the week. And the movie of the week that week was Tremors. And I had never seen anything like it before. This was my first Kevin Bacon movie. I didn't see Footloose until like two or three years ago. So um, this was my first experience with Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. And immediately I was taken with the charisma of this cast because um, 
during those formulative years for me, I was really starting to get in the movies. I loved monster movies. I loved a lot of horror movies, but I'd never seen them blend comedy with it as well. Like I, it would be years before I'd see evil dead. I wouldn't see that until I was in grade 12 or 13. Um, so seeing this was kind of cool and it looked Hollywood. It didn't look cheap. Um, and it was set in as the story uh, of Tremors goes, it's set in perfection Nerva, uh, Nevada, which is geographically isolated. So you've got all you've got the perfect storm of monsters attacking a small population. There is no way out. You have to walk on the ground to get anywhere. There's just everything that can possibly go against you is there. So watch the movie, love the movie. One of my first crushes in terms of cinema, my first crush, I remember this crystal clearly, was um, Finn Carter, the woman who plays Rhonda, who's the geologist, or the seismologist, rather, um, in this movie. I just thought she was gorgeous. She won a Saturn Award, I think, that year for Best Supporting Actress. Oh, that's Um, awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and she just had this really expressive um, emotion to her, and like I just thought she was incredibly pretty. Although, Googling her name now, <laughs> holy shit. Uh, she's wanted, or she had a court date back in October for theft of a motor vehicle and 14 counts of possessing a credit card that did not belong to her. You gotta get away from those graboids, okay? Whatever yeah. means necessary. Hotwire car, fake your license, whatever you gotta do. Get away from the graboids. But don't move to the goddamn desert. Um, <laughs> but um, one of the things... She's, she's probably living in like a Breaking Bad. <laughs> yeah, you know what? She doesn't look great, I'll say that. And that's really unfortunate. But anyway, um, one of the things that I was really... I really wanted to talk about with you with this is when you invited me on this and I found this was the Triassic part, sort of the monster movie podcast or whatever it is. Um, there was something that triggered a memory in me. And, uh, for those of you that have followed my career over the last 13, 14 years, I'm a pretty big role player. I love Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, Shadowrun, etc. But one of my favorite games is done by Chaosium games. And it's based on HP Lovecraft's, call of cthulhu which is there's a basically everything you know about space physics everything is a lie there is a very placid bit island of ignorance which humanity lives on we're not meant to venture far from it because there's things we can't understand there's a monster known as a as a cthonin a cthonin is basically a graboid without the um tentacle mouths these things live in or near the center of the earth they can withstand temperatures up to 5,000 degrees fahrenheit they can burrow through rock unlike graboids and they are just incredibly powerful creatures they have like a city in south africa that nobody goes near because monsters and it's scary these creatures can cause incredibly powerful earthquakes and can sink entire cities and if enough of them got together probably entire continents so when i watched tremors last night looking at the design of the graboids i'm wondering if the writers and the creature uh people who did this who i think 
did some pretty other big special effects. Yeah, it was like it was like Tom Tom Woodruff and his studios, and like it was they they on the DVD they have an interview um, with uh, with both of the special effects guys, and right behind them you see the Goro body from uh, the '95 Mortal Kombat movie. <laughs> so I was like, oh yeah, they've done they've done quite a bit, and they did they did some work on the Alien franchise. Um, I try to figure out where on the alien franchise but they 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 have a lot of talk about how much goop to uh put in in creature design and how uh how rewarding it is to goop up a creature so i wouldn't be too surprised they talk about in the the behind the scenes features that they they made some initial like previews for the the graboids and some concept art and they sent it over and apparently it looked too much like a penis so yeah. they had to so they had to redo it um, entirely uh so i wouldn't be surprised cuz like they when when they heard that they're like oh we we just thought it would just look like a, a turtleneck but then we realized that yeah dicks also kind of look like turtlenecks so we had to change it but it, they seem like the kind of guys who i would not be surprised if they had uh, some Call of Cthulhu knowledge. Uh, yeah, like, from. like it, 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 it was something so cool just to see a monster look unlike anything I'd seen up to that point. Because, yeah, like you, you mentioned Aliens, which has that very H.R. Geiger uh, influence, um, and the Graboid. I keep wanting to say Cthulhu because now I'm in Call of Cthulhu <laughs> mode. Um, it looks neat. It looks like something that actually could really plausibly exist. Yeah, um, yeah. They said that was like again in the special features. They talked about how that was a big push. They kind of like they wanted to take like some animal features, but they wanted to make it so that like, hey, if this creature existed, how would it get around? What would it do? They don't think about that in later sequels. They they just make whatever they want. Yeah, but they're like they're they're like, yeah, let's have a creature that randomly blasts fire and propane out of its ass. Okay. It can also lay eggs like you you'd think like where it lays eggs would kind of be interrupted by the fire. But anyway, but yeah, it's like, but yeah, like I, I always thought this franchise, or at least the first movie, was really fantastic. It like, I, um, it's got great tension, great atmosphere, wonderful I, chemistry between Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. Oh, so good. I think, I think you bringing up Call of Cthulhu brings up a really interesting comparison. I feel like this movie, it feels like you're playing a D&D campaign with a whole bunch of like really good high level players because all of the party members are good and entertaining and you like to see them interact which um which kind of like immediately strikes up to like the best role playing experiences I've had coincidentally they've mostly been DM'd by you Ew, that's what I do luck. that's what you do <laughs> bring bring the cath- but yeah it, it did kind of feel like a really good and solid D&D campaign where, you know, the DMs on on point and all, all the players are like doing really really good stuff. And it also helps that this isn't the typical movie where the heroes have these amazing set of skills. These are all ordinary people. And when you bring up the Dungeons and Dragons comparison, each party member or each character movie has a special set of skills skills on well i would argue um 
Val and Earl, played by Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon, are bards. And what do I mean by that? Yes. Jack of all trades, master of none. But they're very clever. Whereas Rhonda's character, or sorry, um, Finn's character, Rhonda, ha- has a specialized knowledge. She's not great at any uh, at at everything, but she's good at one thing specifically, but can think very, very kind of cleverly. And each other character has a supporting role in that. Whereas Bert Gummer and his wife, Heather are obviously your fighters and your Rangers of the group with superior firepower. And that's something else that I liked in this just because they killed one graboid. It took a shit ton of ammo. It had to be in a highly specialized sit sit situation and he couldn't use the same trick twice because when they get on the roof uh, right towards the beginning of the third act after they kill the uh, second graboid, he takes out this um, elephant gun, which coincidentally enough had to be taken from a private collector and have the, <laughs> the shells specifically machined to fit this gun. So he gets up on the roof and he's like, all right, I'm going to take this motherfucker out. I've, I've done it before. I'll do it again. He gets up on the roof, shoots at it, realizes the elephant gun has tremendous power, but no penetration because of the dirt. Cause that's one thing a lot of people don't realize about firearms. Yeah. They're really fucking powerful. Like for example, a 50 cal will go through an engine block and you automatically assume all firearms can perform these miracles of, you know, penetration and spectacular. Coincidentally, coincidentally, I'm pretty sure that actually happens in Tremors too. I think a 50 cal does go through an engine block in. I think I remember that. Yeah. He shoots his own (laughs) truck by accident or something. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, one of the things they did in Mythbusters. um, is they take an assault rifle, which typically fires, I want to say, five, five, six rounds, which is your typical, uh, like, M4, M16. Most rifles take this, unless they're taking 7.62 ammo. And it disintegrates when you shoot at water. So imagine what's going to happen when it hits something significantly harder, like dirt. That energy is going to dissipate. Um, whereas a 9mm bullet, which is traveling a little bit slower, will go through water, might hurt you, might kill you, but a 5.56 round, you're relatively protected after just a couple of meters. So imagine shooting that into dirt, which is going to dissipate that energy over a denser material and a wider area. So when Bert shoots the, the graboid or tries to, he's like, shit, it didn't work, there's no penetration. And that was something, I'm glad the writers had the forethought to say, hey, why don't we just have them gun them to death? And even towards the end of the movie, when they use the construction equipment, they're all loaded out with guns. They've got bombs and everything. They disarm them pretty quickly. Like one of their bombs goes off, blows up their entire stack of pipe bombs. They've got one left. They've got what ammo they have left. Cause I'm pretty sure the ammo box also goes up. Yep. Yep. I'm pretty sure the, the ammo box goes up. Um, I bet you they even lost their fuses because, like, that's a big thing. Like, those things are pretty useless if you don't have fuses. Um, yeah, so you limit the the char- – I was going to say party. You limit the <laughs> characters in what they can do. You force them to think outside the box. And I think that's the brilliance of Tremors is you're putting ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances and you're not giving them superpowers. Certain horror movies – will give their characters something that makes them 
super like they're they're super powerful or they're super clever or they're like action heroes right whereas right. tremors makes them a little more vulnerable and weaker like there are points and i noticed this last night and i didn't notice it until this and this is like 30 years later um just as the graboids attack perfection melvin climbs uh he's outside playing with a friggin' basketball and he freaks out <laughs> earl and he's playing with it the graboid grabs the basketball and he screams and he and he and he gets up the pole super quick earl comes outside and you see melvin and the camera pans up the graboid got a hold of melvin's leg because he's cut I oh. never noticed that, so which means there was a chance that this movie was willing to kill a kid. And that's something I noticed, too. At one point, Bert hands an unloaded gun to him just as they're running out to the rocks in the like third act. And that's something also you never saw in movies, handing a kid a loaded firearm. The only other movie where I can think where a kid held a gun was Robocop 2, and that was in 91. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That's uh, that's a good point. Like they don't really. I'm amazed that wasn't something that had to get cut, right? Like I'm amazed that didn't come back from like the MPAA or something, and they're like, "Oh, you can't have a kid with a gun. They're gonna they're gonna do stuff." And I mean, yeah, because you see Melvin point that gun and pull the trigger, and then yeah. he's like, "Bert, there's no bullets for this gun." You asshole! There's no yeah. bullets for this gun. Got you yeah. moving, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, so it's little things like that. There's little smart things in this movie because I think the guys that wrote this didn't they write like Short Circuit or something? Yeah, yes, they did. They, that's that. That was their first big break. So they they got all the money from Short Circuit and they they kind of like were like, "Call awesome! I can I can make this movie." So these guys are clever. They're nerds because they know what works and they don't want superheroes because like you could argue even some of the protagonists for horror movies like nightmare on elm street friday the 13th and michael or um halloween some of those protagonists feel pretty you know you're not going to kill laurie stroud notwithstanding the later sequels and even the, <laughs> um, the freaking oh my god don't get me started on the the history of laurie strode or i'll be here for 10 days She's a um, fucking Terminator. Um, she's a ter well, I think so. I think bringing up Laurie Strode is like a is like a good uh, jumping off point for the fact that I think other movies would have made Bert the hero, which is why I I like that he's not the hero in the movie. Like he's just one of the cool side characters in the movie. Yeah. I enjoy the later sequels. Don't get me wrong, but I do think what makes this movie and Tremors two um, special is that like that Al. And so Al, Val, and Earl relationship, and like their dynamics, and and how how they how they act. So, I think having it be bards, as you said, be the heroes, uh, makes for a very interesting movie, and kind of unlike what you see. I thought it was interesting because they even go out. You can even read into uh, some lessons about masculinity in this movie, and like don't have unrealistic expectations and like don't be a toxic dude because like multiple times earl is like you don't don't look for somebody who just fits your list like that's gross dude just like grow up and you're like damn i feel like a lot of men of a certain age could hear that should hear that right so i thought i thought that was interesting how on its surface, it just seems like a fun monster movie, but there are little bits and pieces that are really 
worth digging into as far as like the lead characters and their interactions and what well, that yeah. says. Like I think there's a lot of smart things to this movie that I think are appreciated today. Like as you mentioned, toxic uh, toxic m- masculinity. Val's going out to the desert with Earl at one point. They talk about the new grad student who they find out is a girl, and he's like, "I hope she has big boobs, ass that won't quit, legs that go all the way up, and blah blah blah." And as you said, Earl says, maybe you should look at the person. And as that movie grows, it's not until the end of the movie that you see any real chemistry between the two. Well, no, there's the scene out on the rock where he puts her jacket or his jacket on her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a nice scene. But they never play up the sexual tension other than I am concerned for your safety. And then at the end of the movie, yeah, you're kind of cute. Maybe we'll see each other. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. There was an alternate cut. There was an alternate ending. There's a few. So for some, for whatever reason, the DVD I have, I clicked on a, a special feature called Outtakes. And they're not outtakes. It's deleted scenes. So I whoever made the DVD does not know, understand what outtakes are. But anyways, the one of the deleted scenes is a, a alternate ending for the movie. And it was originally filmed as they didn't kiss and they didn't like having a romantic moment. It literally was Val and Earl leaving on the truck and they, as they were driving to Bixby and then they went, wait a minute. And then Earl was like, wait a minute, where's my, where's my lighter? I think she, I think that girl still has my lighter. And then, uh, that's when Val goes, well, I knew I should have said a proper goodbye. Let's go get that lighter. And they just turn around to go get the lighter. But that's the end of the movie. Like, it kind of ended on, like, a joke. Whereas the movie, as it is now, I I, I think I think they're both good endings. Like, I think in an alternate world, I think I would have also been happy with that ending. Because it is kind of, like, funny and, and cute and scenes within the characters. But uh, it was nice to see them kiss and have that, like, little classic shot. Um, yeah. I mean, the only thing that's slightly out of character for this, but they play it the right way is again the t- the attack on perfection just outside the store uh Rhonda gets attacked gets her legs caught in barbed wire and she has to take off her pants and her boots where she's just in her um panties running away and they don't hold on the shot for long and yay i guess it's an ass shot and it's meant to make her look pretty but that's reasonable. Your pant, your legs are caught up in this material. You can't reasonably get free in time. Otherwise you are dead. That's yeah. a clever use of danger. I thought it is. I, I agree. I agree because I had forgotten just how long she would have been. Like I was like, Oh, it's, I, when I was watching the movie again, I was like, Oh, is she going to be like without pants for like the majority of this movie? Like, Oh gosh, but no, it's just like, she's inside and like getting patched up. And then, you know, Miguel just can't, comes and gives her a pair of pants and some new shoes, right? Like, so it's just like that one scene, and it's like, yeah, to get out of danger, like, you gotta do what you gotta do. And uh, I thought that was uh, I thought that was good, because it, it mm-hmm. didn't seem to be very exploitative, but, you know, it still was, kind of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, and for a big Hollywood movie to, like, not be exploitative when they very well could have, because they knew this was originally going to be rated R, but they got... Thanks, asshole. Um, <laughs> I'm keeping that in. That was amazing. <laughs> Douchebag. Tiny penis. Anyway. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, I, I just, I, I'm glad they didn't over-sexualize her. They made her real. They made her 
not an object. She wasn't a damsel in distress. They needed her to figure out what the hell was going on. Yeah, definitely. And there are those moments where you're like, oh, someone's going to have to save her. And then she saves herself. Like, I think of that uh, part when they're all going on the top of, like, Chang's market. And she falls out the window. And then immediately Val, like, goes to the goes to the side of the building and is like, oh, I got to save her. I got to save her. And he thinks she's dead. And it turns out she just went up the water tower. But I feel like a lesser movie would have made that a set piece where he's like, I've got to lasso her with a rope and carry her up because I'm the man. But they, uh, you know, they subvert that by just having her save herself. She just like, walks up a thing. Another thing that I, I, I noticed, too, there's a, a little bit of emotional weight with this movie, too, is when they kill Melvin's dad. Um, yeah, yeah. That was, you gotta do something. Like, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, uh, and the, the moment, it only holds for a couple minutes. You get a little bit of vulnerability out of the actor, but as you said, you got to do something because that dad just scrambles. I can't remember his character. Stu, I think. Um, and he scrambles. He hides on top of this like tractor tire. The graboids sense the vibrations and kill him. Um, and it shows that not everybody is safe. I was surprised when they killed Victor Wong, too, um, because, well, he's like the character actor, him and James Hong. If you need an Asian guy for a movie, you call these guys or the guy who's always the henchman in every 80s movie ever. Oh, goodness gracious. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. The guy with the beard um, who has his own documentary, by the way. Um, nice. But yeah. Yeah. There, there's just, again, situations that could be set pieces, characters who should be one off one notes are given something to do even little characters like Mindy played by uh, Ariana Richards of Jurassic Park fame. Um, her pogo stick gets called back to it where she's jumping when Val and Earl are about to leave town. And Earl's like, what's the count? Mindy 600 and blah, blah, blah. And then she's in town jumping and then she gets off her pogo stick and the graboid eats it and spits it back out. There's little clever callbacks like that. Yeah, it's funny that uh, that pogo pogo stick line is in like every trailer because they use it to like make out that like this is just your average podunk town. And it's like how many are you up to now, Mindy? And so like they do all of that stuff, which I thought was uh, was really cute. I kind of wonder how much of this script was ad libbed because Fred Ward, I've only ever seen him in comedy stuff before. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. I I'm Fred Ward is like a good as a good uh, good sense of humor on him it seems because he he lets the character of Earl get some moments where he just pretty much gets made a fool of, which I think is pretty great. Yeah, and there're just moments where I get the feeling the scriptwriters again don't know. This is purely speculation on my part like, okay, here's what I want you to say. How would Earl say it? And they just let him run with it. Like, I, I have a feeling, like, one scene where I really think this happened is right in the beginning of the movie. So I, I have a feeling this was probably shot later, where they're talking about breakfast, and they're talking about stampede, and Kevin Bacon says, well, Earl, how many head of cattle constitute a stampede? And it's just the way how quicky, uh, quick and quippy that line comes out and is delivered. There's like 
something about that scene just seems just a little too natural and they let the camera roll uh yeah funnily enough uh, i don't know have you seen slither by james gunn by chance that's one of his movies i haven't seen actually it's interesting and full uh, full of bizarre references. And one of them is the fact that one of the schools is called Earl Bassett Community School. Oh, that's in, awesome. Yeah, in the town. So I thought that was amazing. Uh, James Gunn is always just like putting in all of these like really interesting, obscure references. And I thought that was really funny. One of the things I noticed, uh, you mentioned how... They, they kill off Chang. I, I never noticed that the septic tank they're cleaning out is literally got Chang's you rent on it. So he even owns the septic tanks that like they're they're taking out and they're renting and they're using. So I thought that was hilarious. I, there's little things like that in the prop departments kind of like really make the movie and kind of help to sell the town that he really does kind of like own half of it and has everything in his store. Like the scene where um, <laughs> Bert comes in and they're like talking about bullets and like they're ordering the very specific types of bullets that are, that he wants, which I thought was just like really funny. Is they're haggling. One thing that I I, I don't know and and I, I feel bad because I, I I like to consider myself a gun enthusiast, not a hobbyist because I don't know nearly enough about it, but I love fictional firearms, especially. I, I still don't know to this very day what the hell Reba McIntyre is doing when just before the Graboid attack, when she activates that blue machine where it looks like it's filled with sand and bullets. Oh, yeah, yeah, I I always say that. I'm just like, oh, just a bullet thing. You just you just shake them up, I guess. Oh. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, are you are like, like, seriously, if somebody knows, please tell me because I really don't know. Um, but I love the prop departments when they cut away again to refer to that scene. They cut to the wall of firearms and the armorer. They probably just said, get whatever looks cool, but also makes sense. Um, so you don't see Earl have as many military-grade weapons as I expected. Um, he's got some. Um, you're seeing, like, your standard shotguns. I love seeing Re Reba McIntyre um, um, akimbo dual-wheel <laughs> pistols. Yeah, <laughs> Reba McIntyre is just going ham with the dual pistols. So I was like, yeah, Reba. And I was surprised, again that how much damage the Graboids took. And again, I love how the filmmakers address that. Like, yeah, you you can't just pump a few 9mm rounds in this thing and it's going to die because that's a one horror movie trope. Very few monsters actually die if you pump firearms. In. Hell, they even circumvented this problem in the Child's Play movies kind of later on where they're like, well, why don't you just shoot them? And then he could transfer his soul. Well, we solved that problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're always... Because I feel like in a lot of movies... So, like, if I'm watching a slasher, I think it would be really boring if to just see, like, Jason Voorhees get his head blown off with a shotgun at the end. Like, I don't know. It just... I, I feel like sometimes gunplay, unless it's in, like, an action movie or it's used well, can kind of get tedious, especially in, like, a horror setting. But I think it's used really well here. 
Yeah, exactly. It's not the be all and end all. Plus, I don't think like even when Earl has his pistol when they're going out of town, I don't think they use it very. I, I I'm not. I don't even know whether he actually uses it. I know they don't. I know Val uses the his rifle when the horses get eaten for a few shots, and the grab boy just shrugs those rounds off like they're nothing. Yeah, I really like that scene because, like, I love it reacts to him. It shrugs him off, but it reacts to it, which I always like because I feel like there are some movies where, uh, I mean, this happens in video games all the time, but when you're hitting an enemy and it, there's, like, no reaction to it and you're just like, did I do anything effective there? And a lot of horror movies will just make it look like, oh, he got hit with a colossal blast and it didn't do anything. Like, you don't see any reaction from the monster or the enemy. And I really appreciated seeing the Graboid. It didn't get hurt by those few little shots, but it reacted to it and was like, Row! like it was like it's like a cat that's like upset that you took away its food or something. I don't know. Mm hmm. But uh, yeah, so I thought that I thought that was that was really smart. I don't know if he if he used the pistol because I don't I don't think so. Uh, yeah. I do I do love that the graboids tongues like quite blow off pretty easily. Like they blow up a bunch of those tongues, which is which is awesome. And I think that that's really smart. I I they never, which is weird. They never talk about in any of the sequels. Like where is the brain? Of the Graboid. Did they do any autopsies afterwards and figure out what exactly the physiology is? Because I would love to know where the brain of this thing is. It wouldn't surprise me if, if they addressed it in the series at some point. Because if you're going to stretch it over one season, which is how long the show ran, it wouldn't surprise me if there was one episode where they talked about it. Again, I don't they, know. I haven't seen the series. They might. I have seen the series. I'm looking at the series right now because it's in my TVT collection. Um, but I, they do a lot of, like, that series is weird because they do a lot of shenanigans where they're like, there's a mad scientist and he makes other monsters that we have to deal with. And I'm like, boo. Bring back the Graboids. I don't give a shit about this. Um, but it's still fun. It's still fun. It's Bert shooting other monsters. but <laughs> One of the other uh, things uh, about this movie, I think it goes underappreciated. This movie has a really interesting soundtrack. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting. There is a little bit of controversy in regards to the soundtrack because the original composer got redone and then he is not the one who is credited um i need to figure out the yeah so there's music is uh, composed by like two people but they re-recorded a whole bunch of it before the film's release and i really like the soundtrack um to the movie but there was a little bit of controversy um, yeah the like movie soundtrack floats between being goofy and serious but it hits that right combination where whoever edited the music in with the movie it suits the tone of the scene where it never takes away from it and i think again that's part of the brilliance of this movie um is that almost everything works like this is by by no means a perfect masterpiece it's not the citizen Kane of fucking monster movies but it Disagree. is something <laughs> I think I think it's one of the things you could easily throw on and show anybody and have them fairly entertained. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
Um, yeah, so apparently, so compo- the composer that got credited was Ernest Troost, uh, but the, uh, the entire rescore was actually done by a composer named Robert Folk. Uh, but apparently Ernest Troost had like a really good uh, uh, contract with the studio, so he got the credit for it regardless. <laughs> so that's apparently what happened there. But yeah, I think I think the soundtrack is is great because the a lot of pretty much all of the incidental music is like country crooners, which I thought was which I thought was like a fun way to really build the setting up. And the like interstitial actual soundtrack music is always really kind of stuck in my head. So very, very good point for that. And it is like endlessly entertaining. Like I have seen this movie so many times. At every sleepover in high school, I would watch it. Hell, I'm pretty sure there was weeks where I only watched Tremors. And it's still not old. Like I still have a great time every time I watch it. The DVD I own of this is probably the oldest DVD in my collection. It's it's I've owned it for ages, and uh, and weirdly enough, I never watched the special features until we did this podcast. So it's one of those things where podcasting about movies can actually be pretty rewarding in the fact that it encourages you to kind of do some research and learn a little bit more about the production history of of movies. Uh, I remember watching my taped off of CTV recording for this a lot until I moved uh, to my first uh, apartment back in 99, 98. Um, And I just remember watching it endlessly i mean even having those old ass commercials from c from ctv was like hi i'm lisa laflamme with ctv kitchener and blah 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 blah, which good on her for being national anchor for like a million years now um but yeah like (laughs) i just really i enjoy this movie endlessly i'm so glad i watched it um last night um it brought back a lot of really pleasant memories. Like I'm really going to have to go back and rewatch the series at some point, actually watch uh, the television series as well. Cause I think this, t- this specific type of movie has a really feel good feel to it. Like this yeah. is a PG 13 movie done right. I yeah. Think. Well, that's a really good point that people argue that PG 13 horror can't be done or it monster movies or PG 13 in general gets a lot of slack uh, and a lot of flack as a rating. Uh, and I think tremors really proves that it can be done really well. Uh, it's just a matter of making it fit the right movie. Really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, like PG 13 is one of those ratings. Yes. It's going to get the most people to go see it but it's how you construct your movie. Like you're not going to get a a Friday the 13th PG 13. I would love to see what that would look like. Oh goodness Uh, gracious. Don't tempt them. Don't tempt them. But you could pull off a nightmare on Elm street PG 13. And I know I'm going to catch flack from your listeners for that, but I think, no, I, I, no, I think that's actually, that's, that's pretty legit as far as commentary goes, because a lot of really good, movies in the nightmare on elm street franchise are much more focused on the psychological horror rather than just being blood and guts i i mean of course there's like you know geysers of blood in the first movie but i think that uh for example i think the roach death in four 
I think that would fit in a PG-13 movie. There's nothing R-rated about that because there's no blood. Well, but, yeah, because like you've seen worse on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and that was in the 90s. Yeah, 100%. So like, if you focused on the psychological horror and you, you did that route, I, I 100% think that you could do PG-13. I mean, looking at Tremors as a PG-13 movie, let's talk about some of the gore in it. I only recall a cup. I remember seeing the old guy die up on the thing and he just died of dehydration. You yeah, see, he looked gross, though. Like, he looked gross. There was the severed head of the rancher and all the bodies of the sheep. Yep. And and you see the workers out on the road, which is what I presume is brain matter in his helmet, but they never hold the shot. And you see the graboids, but monster gourd doesn't seem to count. No, it reason. doesn't, which is always weird because, like, the the blood is not that dissimilar, especially in this movie, to, like, human gore, right? Like, it's not that crazy. Because I know in some movies it's like, it's super green and it's wackadoo. And in this one it's a little more orange-tinted blood, but it's not as uh, dissimilar and as weird as some movies do in order to get a lower rating. So You know I was what this blood surprised. looks like? Does this blood of the Graboids, does it not remind you of George Romero's Dawn of the Dead? Oh! color tone? Yes, yes, because especially in those those early zombie movies, the blood was so red, right? Like, that was really what, one of the iconic uh, elements of those movies. Like, I even think of, like, other uh, Italian horror movies, like uh, Suspiria is, like, super red, so... Yeah, that goes a lot uh, with uh, with the time period. I guess maybe the that's why I think this movie really fits. It's like this movie that is a perfect B movie of its era in that it brings some gore, but it doesn't overdo it, and it does it smart, and it does it that in a way that pretty much references the past as well, which is yeah. uh, which is smart. Like clearly, whoever was behind this from the production staff prop department art direction cinematography everybody who worked on this had a love for it on some level there's homages there the creature effects are fantastic the actors clearly have had a really good time with it one of the things that really surprised me is i'm surprised this movie didn't do better i know it, it had a budget of about 10 million dollars it released on a weekend against nothing um, I think it was released in August of the year it was released. I want to say 90. Yep, 1990. And, and it dropped from number fourth spot to number 11 within just a few weeks. But it made its budget back at $16 million. And I remember seeing it, as I mentioned, on CTV pretty quickly. So it's that's, really unfortunate. That's a surprise, though, because... If you watch Tremors 2, Tremors 2 is not a cheap movie. Like, they put a lot of money in that, and that was originally going to be a theatrical release, and it got switched to being, uh, you know, just like a normal release. But that is not a lot of profit for a movie that has had a franchise last this long. Yeah, I mean, it, like, the, the 80s and 90s and the 2000s always had the direct-to-video market with, like, certain franchises. I mean, look at what happened with the Halloween movies, right? Um, and 
there there's a, a fan base for these like i'm surprised we got a tremor six as recently as last year with michael gross still um, there's a new back. one there's a new one coming out this year tremors oh island fury where they're oh, on God. an island and i'm pretty sure it's already been filmed because there's a whole bunch of set visits so like i think this is one of those movies where it's not going to be postponed it's just gonna come out shit i'm there day one um Hell i should try yeah. and get an interview for this um but yeah like it's one of those enduring franchises that has a fan base they're probably cheap ish to make it has a name the and and a company like the asylum isn't doing them it's still produced by universal i think yep yep uh, still still you know again which is pretty amazing yeah, like because the, they've held on to this IP for so long, they haven't done a big reboot of it, and I kind of think Tremors. I don't know if if I'd want a reboot. I kind of like where it is right now. Yeah, I I have a soft spot for franchises that just kind of continue, and 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 just keep adding to it and keep trucking along, even though it may be kind of more wise to maybe stop doing it. Um, and I, I don't, I think that the age of the reboot or at least the age of the reboot as we knew them as in remakes are kind of dead. I could see someone trying to make like a Halloween 2018 version where they bring back an older Kevin Bacon, which was actually what the TV series was going to be. Um, and I think that was made as a response. I'd have to check the dates as to when the TV series was meant to come out. Yeah, but, see, that'd be fine. That would be great, especially if they did it, as you mentioned, like the Halloween 2018 revival as opposed to the Nightmare on Elm Street 2010 reboot. Yeah, that happened. That was a movie. That's one of the only times I've walked out of a theater. Um, I remember I saw the movie, watched it all the way through, and this nice usher, and I I really should have apologized. But the usher goes, so how is your movie? And I walk past him. Fuck you. <laughs> I was so bad. I was so bad. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Uh, you know, with that, is is there any anything else that you, you want to talk about? Any other topics you think we've kind of left out in terms of the tremors? Or you think maybe... Maybe saying fuck you to the usher is how we end this podcast. I, I think what I want to end with is the Tremors franchise, I think it needs to be respected for its longevity, its creativity. There has been some diminishing returns, but to have stars like Michael Grossman, who stars as Bert, to keep coming back, the fact that he has the loyalty to the franchise, I mean, it's probably like, hey, I got a new boat this year. That's loyalty to a fan. That's loyalty to a fan base. And I think that's to be commended. And the idea of having a true monster movie that isn't like a franchise slasher like Chucky, Michael, Jason is kind of cool. Because I, I can't name too many horror comedies that ride the line between absurd and serious and I yeah. like the way this movie feels. And I think if, if you're going to watch these movies, the first one, as we've talked about in this like hour-long podcast, absolutely worth your time. If you only had to watch one movie, watch the first one. Um, the other ones, I like the second one from what I remember. 
because uh, that one had a pretty high budget. It was Michael Grossman, and it's him investigating an oil field, although Reba McIntyre is not in it. No, um, unfortunately. But Fred Ward returns for part two. So they got Earl some of there. the cast back. So yeah. once again, check out this franchise. It is fantastic. It is um, amazing. And as my final thing, fuck you! <laughs> That's perfect. That's amazing. Um, where can we find your work on the internet, Mike? Okay, well, uh, currently, uh, and as always for the last 13 years, you can find me uh, each God. and every week at thisweekingeek.net. We, po- we post uh, new shows every Monday. Um, depending on when the show goes up, I may be taking a brief break during summer so I can do JRPG July. Uh, which I'm really looking forward to doing that. I also work with Nerd to the Third Power. You can find them on YouTube. Um, I've been doing a D&D actual play podcast called Fools Who Ride the Dreamstone. We have recorded, I want to say, 13 or 14 episodes. I think uh, episode number eight or nine has just recently gone live. Don't quote me on that exact number. But we are nearing the climax of our adventure. And... Um, on social media, I'm not hard to find. I'm at Birdman Dot. I'm either posting ridiculous uh, cat pictures or I'm talking about something important in terms of a political issue and uh, just trying to keep my nose clean. Well, thank you. Thank you. Everyone should check out Mike. Mike is, honest to God, one of the best content producers and one of the best people I've known throughout my years of podcasting. Um, so thank you for joining us. You can find this podcast on Patreon. Ooh, yes, we've got a Patreon. And it's all dinosaur content right now because we only have one patron. And I asked him what he wanted. And he said, I, I'm, I'm fine with dinosaur stuff. Like, you can just leave the Riverdale stuff off for now. So it's, uh, you know, look at us up at Milkshakes and Mimosas on Patreon. And you can find, find some goodies. Tune in in just a few days for our Canada Day special we're talking Yeti, Giant of the 20th Century, which is a movie that takes place in Canada. It's a giant Yeti movie where the Yeti rampages Toronto and there are prop Yeti nipples. That's all you need to know. Thank you and have a Triassic day. Goodbye. <laughs>